Say It Skillfully is about being who you really are and saying what you think needs to be said, even at work. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. Join Molly Chang today as together we break the silence and learn how to be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in life. Hello, Molly here. Welcome to Say It Skillfully, helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. Today, my guest is a man on the move, an artificial intelligence futurist, academic, prolific author, and globally recognized expert on technology-driven innovation, including financial innovation. He created the first graduate fintech class in North America called Future Commerce at MIT. In business, his track record includes helping established organizations build revenue in excess of $10 billion of growth opportunities with the likes of Ernst & Young, GE, the Walt Disney Company, AOL Verizon, as well as private equity and VC funds. He's also led a number of PE and VC-backed companies as CEO, CFO, or COO, including taking a company public on the New York Stock Exchange. His academic roles include Professor of Practice, AI, and Innovation at Imperial College Business School, and previously Associate Fellow at Oxford Said Business School, Lecturer at the MIT Media Lab, and MIT New Ventures Officer. Part of his success derived from his ability to translate academic theory into business practice, and he's co-founded four AI-enabled spin-outs from MIT and advised multiple unicorn technology companies. Oh, I will add, he's published six books since 2016 around blockchain, data, cybersecurity, and fintech. His most recent in June 2021 is Augmenting Your Career, How to Win at Work in the Age of AI. We are in, folks, for a supercharged session today. I couldn't be more excited to welcome the CEO and co-founder of AI-powered digital learning startup, Esme Learning, David Schreier. David, thank you for making time to join me. Welcome to Say It Skillfully. Thanks so much, Molly. I'm really excited to be here and look forward to our discussion today. Yeah, I couldn't uh, be more so. And I think you must be about 105 years old to have done all that. So you're really- I started your age. (laughs) So I really, I mean, you're just a blur. I, I just sense you as constant motion and I'm blown away by the range of your endeavors and weaving business and academia in the US and Europe, you know, impact around the globe. Um, your take the hill by storm, make it happen energy is so awesome. Um, maybe as a young person, you envisioned such a multifaceted career, though I would guess not. Um, so I'm grateful if you take us back to the beginning and give listeners a chance to hear what it was like for you growing up, what most shaped you and I'm sure along the way, um, many highs and your fair share of lows. It's been a really, uh, you know, it's been an interesting journey. It it was not in many ways planned. Um, And and so what I eventually found was that by following my passions, I could really uh, um, have much greater success and and really enjoy uh, much more what I was doing. But it it, it didn't start out that way, right? So I, I always was interested in a lot of different things and, and, so, for example, when I was an undergraduate uh, uh, going to, to university, I was studying uh, theater arts. At, this was at, uh, at Brown University. I was studying theater arts, and I was also uh, studying neuroscience. 
And to me, it seemed very natural. I just, I was really interested in the sciences and, and how the, the mind works and the brain works. And I was also really interested in uh, storytelling and, and creating these, these community bonding uh, experiences where you know, the, the tribe comes together in the cave to look at the shadows on the wall. And, and so that was, that was kind of the, the, the things that fascinated me. And, and you know, I was um, very influenced, I think, by my father who, who was born in, in Europe and, and who kind of had a, an archetypal sort of Renaissance man view of the world. Um, I got a lot of criticism for this early on in particular, uh, because, uh, you know, people would tell me, you know, we don't need a generalist or you should specialize or what are you doing here? I don't understand why you don't fit into a neat little pigeonhole box that I can easily think of you in. Uh, and therefore you're a hot mess. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it was, it was, um, it was rough going for a long time because uh, a lot of people just didn't understand me because it's, it's more comforting if you can put people into a discrete little box, right? The most people, the human mind doesn't like ambiguity. It likes certainty and repetition. And so, uh, um, you know, I, I, on the other hand, loved creative chaos. And so, uh, um, you know, that set up a natural tension. That is uh, creative chaos. I love that. So, you know, in hindsight, you, you plug through that, but as a young person and you're forming your sense of self, how did you stay high, not let it really affect your sense of self when people are making you look like the bad guy? You know, so I, I can offer my, my kind of how I, the experience I had at the time, I kind of stumbled into it. And then I can offer you retrospectively uh, kind of what I've figured out. Um, so, so, uh, so on the one hand, I was really stubborn. And the more people told me I was wrong, the more determined I was to, to you know, prove that this was the right way to do things. Uh, and, and so, um, you know, for example, I, early on in my career, I was a business development executive at NBC uh, back when it was owned by GE. And so this at the time in, in 1999, uh, um, you know, it had the reputation of being a meritocracy and an amazing management training ground. And, and so I thought this is a really good thing for me to, to go into. I was really interested in, in this whole world of investments and things. And this was doing digital media investing during the, the first dot-com boom. Uh, so very exciting time to, to be doing that kind of work. And, um, and so on the one hand, they really empowered me and I got to do all sorts of really interesting stuff and was incredibly productive. And so I, I, I um, in, in a relatively short period of time, I was outperforming everyone else in my group by 500%, which included like three vice presidents, a senior vice president, a manager, director. It's a whole group of people. I was low man on the totem pole and my productivity was off the charts. And so after about six months of delivering results for them, uh, I said, you know, you should promote me to a vice president because I'm massively outperforming the three vice presidents you have. Uh, and you know, <laughs> the reaction there, well, it was funny because the, the, the senior vice president uh, who was sort of nominally sitting on top of us uh, and, and, and in more ways than one um, said to me, you know, why do you want to be a vice president? At such, I was 26 at the time. At such a young age, why do you want to be a vice president? Um, well, it, what eventually sort of came to, to be revealed was that, um, you know, he, uh, uh, he was the youngest vice president in Time Warner's history uh, a few years earlier. So he was a VP at age 20 
seven or something. And so he didn't want anyone else to be the golden boy. And, and, and that was a good lesson in sort of, um, you know, it, I have a lot of examples of bad management and I try and I try and manage both by example and by counter example. And he was a great counter example of how not to manage a, a high performing professional. Uh, and they figured this was GE. You'll never leave. We're so amazing. You have to be at NBC, of course. Um, and because uh, uh, this would have made me the youngest vice president outside of the entertainment division. Um, but uh, um, instead, I, you know, there was a guy who recruited me to go to his venture capital fund. So I, so I left, I went there. They never thought I would leave. They, they just figured they could, you know, squash me into the, the little conformist box that they wanted. Um, you know, if I were older, I probably could have played it smarter. Uh, but at the time, my attitude was just plow through it. Um, and, and more broadly, the thing I learned over time, because I did a lot of different corporate innovation work, GE and NBC in particular, was actually a very accepting place of innovation. This was something that Jack Welch had really imbued into the culture. And so if I was working on a deal and I needed to pick up the phone and call the chief operating officer of GE Finance, which was like a major division, he would get on the phone with me and like give me the time I needed to get my thing done. Uh, and so they had that kind of culture in the organization. It was really quite special. Um, since then, I've worked for and with a number of other uh, Global 1000 companies that do not have that um, same culture of innovation. And there, um, you know, what I find is uh, if you're too different, if you're too innovative, and particularly if you're too successful and too innovative, um, then uh, people try to, there's something we call the immune response. So the organization like you know, a human body where white blood cells attack the foreign object and try and kill it, people go after innovators in a really ugly fashion. So the, the average half-life of an innovation executive in, in a big company is about a year. This is based on research from Josh Lerner at the, the Harvard Business School. So you, know, you, you don't tend to last too long because the immune response is so strong. Um, and so you have to develop a lot of thick skin and intestinal fortitude and not take it personally when people go after you, because it's really not about you. It's the fact that you're, you're proposing ideas that are threatening to someone's sense of order in the universe. And, and since they can't reasonably attack the ideas, they then make ad hominem attacks. And you, you just have to kind of roll, roll with that. Wow. Uh, for, for listeners, I, I really applaud this when you recognize the environment and what you can change and what you can't change, you get to make the call of what's going to help you flourish and spread your wings, right? And I think a lot of folks, David, don't necessarily give themselves permission. Maybe they don't have the confidence or maybe they think of uh, risk in a different way than, than you do. Um, but what you're saying is so obvious to me. And I, I look at folks sometimes in those melting pots, I'll call them and be like, wow, you're like, it's, you're never going to be able to be the change in the world. You really want to be, you can be great there. You know? So I, I think, I just want to encourage folks to really think hard about your own personal choice um, and, and give yourself permission to do what's right for you. Well, it takes courage, right? And, and, and you have to decide what's most important to you. So there's a uh, a, a visual I like to use, kind of an idea, a conceptual framework I like to use when I'm teaching innovation and particularly organizational, big corporate innovation to people. Um, and I say, you know, imagine a triangle. Um, and at one part of the triangle, it's um, innovating. It's creating something new and different. At a second point in the triangle, it's um, 
getting credit, getting credit for doing that innovation. And at the third part of the triangle, it's getting along with your, your colleagues. You have to choose two, you can't have all three. And so what's more, this is where knowing yourself and knowing your values and what's important to you is, is what will let you flourish. So, so for example, at one organization, um, I, I led some innovations that eventually resulted in creating a new billion dollar market category in, in a matter of a few years. And, uh, and so that was very exciting. And so I got to innovate and that organization went from minus 25 million to plus 50 million in a particular business area in like three, four years without spending any money. I figured out how to get an outside partner to, to pay all of the risk capital to make that transformation. Uh, so that was a very, very exciting time and exciting venture. So I did something new and innovative. Um, uh, and, uh, um, you know, the, the, at least some of the people that I want, the, certainly the people I wanted to work with, I got along with, um, but, uh, uh, but I didn't get credit for it. <laughs> So not internally, um, externally, people recognized what I had done and that led to a whole bunch of other stuff over time. But, but internally, you know, the senior leadership had no idea it was me. I was the troublemaker. Um, at my rank and file level, the only way I was able to be successful is by getting along with everybody and letting them take credit for stuff. But, uh, you know, I had to make some choices. Yeah. Yeah. I know that's so sad and I'm really sad to hear that. And Bravo to you to make it work. And for listeners, I don't want folks to think it's hopeless because no, it's if, not hopeless. Yeah, if you, yeah, if yeah. you get the senior people who embrace the idea of like a really of transparency and of trust. And the trust is that you're all here for a reason. No one's trying to defend turf. Um, and we want to help everybody thrive. It's doable. And I know it does exist, folks. So I don't want people to be jaded from it. At the same time, when it's something that you can't control, I appreciate what you did, which you go in there and you take it by storm and you do what you can do to get out what you can. And it's a stepping stone in your journey, you know, and kind of bummer for them. <laughs> yeah, well, really I was know. never motivated by credit. That's the thing. You have to figure out what motivates you. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, if, if getting credit for something is what motivates you, if, if recognition and there's nothing wrong, by the way. A lot of people need recognition. I certainly need recognition, but in, in other ways. Um, uh, you know, if recognition is what's important to you, then you have to know that because then you can optimize your behaviors and your career and what you choose to do in order to, to, to get that kind of recognition. If, if making an impact on the world is really important to you, then, then you can optimize around that. If, if collegiality, if being part of a community and a culture of an organization is really important to you, then you can optimize for that. So the important thing is self-knowledge, right? Yes. Knowing yourself. Hello, everyone listening. Huge, 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 because that's the thing that no one else can solve for you. And that is the journey of life of getting to know ourselves for who we really are. Um, the, okay. So this is, so we're going to go so many places on this, the, <laughs> the, um, I just want to wrap in the school area because I'm curious. Yeah, yeah. So how did you, um, you're doing these different things. And then I'm just wondering right out of school, how did you think about your job and you making money? And, and I'm just kind of wondering, did, did you just get the right job? I and mean, what, what were you thinking? Uh, no, I definitely did not get quote the right job, but I got an interesting start. So uh, um, 
so I had a tremendous amount of, of um, passion and fun in doing theater. And most importantly, I had mentorship. And so one of my formative mentors in, in university and in college was Paula Vogel, who is a, um, a Pulitzer Prize winning playwright uh, who ran some formidable playwriting programs and herself mentored four Pulitzer Prize winning playwrights. So really kind of legendary in the American theater scene. And so Paula mentored me and, and gave me a lot of support. And with her help, I was able to get a, uh, an internship at La Jolla Playhouse in California um, in, in the literary office. So working on new plays. Uh, and I got to work with people like Tony Kushner and uh, Michael Greif and, and Tina Landau and some other sort of luminaries of the day. And, um, uh, and then from there I got, because I had done that and, and I, I should mention just because I'm me, I also did, did a class on, on marine biology at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography, but that was just a, that was just a couple hours a day. Um, so from there, I, I went to New York City and I worked off, 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 off Broadway, but I also interned at uh, New York City work, excuse me, New York Theater Workshop. And uh, uh, at the time they were producing Rent. And so I got to like hold the clap clipboard for the casting director of Rent and help, you know, see the thing in rehearsal and in development. So that was, that was really an extraordinary experience. I wasn't making any money. I was temping, you know, as a word processor in order to pay rent, uh, working graveyard shift. It was definitely brutal, but also, uh, you know, exciting. Um, and, and then I, you know, after doing that for a bit, I realized, and this was before uh, Disney had come to Broadway. So this was before Lion King uh, and Julie Taymor and all that stuff. So, so at the time, uh, and even before Rent, um, you know, the, the theater industry had the artistically meritorious work going on for no money downtown. And it had very glitzy sort of plastic stuff, like a revival of Greece you know, the TV, the movie, excuse me, the, uh, the, the musical Grease, um, uh, Uptown. And that was the moneymaker for the blue hairs from the Upper East Side. And so they're really like, a, uh, they're, they're, you know, you couldn't do art and also make money. And even the people who were at the top of the profession seemed to me, and I get to meet a lot of the top people because of where I was as an intern, seemed to me very unhappy. Uh, and so I didn't see any role models and they weren't making that much money either. So I said, well, geez, if I'm going to be surrounded by unhappy people, I may as well be surrounded by unhappy people making a lot of money. And so, uh, you know, I went to Wall Street and, uh, and I got a job at Lazard. And, and to be fair, there were a lot of people who actually were pretty happy with life at Lazard. Uh, and so that was kind of eye opening and, and stressing my assumptions about Wall Street bankers and finance. Uh, and uh, uh, from Lazard, then, you know, that kind of took me into tech investing and, and I went from there to GE. So, so I didn't have a plan. It wasn't like I, I, I said, I'm gonna get a job on Wall Street. No, I said, I'm gonna go work in theater in New York. And, uh, and then somehow I found, found myself, you know, leading hundreds of millions of dollars for, for, uh, for GE within a, within a couple of years. That's just so outstanding. So quick segue, I wanted to be Jacques Cousteau. I wanted to be a marine biologist. And I went to the library at the time with the big books to look at careers. And the marine biologist made $15,000 and the chemical engineers made $31,000. I'm like, okay, can't afford to be a marine biologist. So that's yeah. hilarious that you took that. I really yeah. wanted no, to No, it was it. just, it was my favorite class. And in fact, if it had not been my last class for my degree program, but one of my earlier classes, I, I could have become a marine biologist because I liked it that much, but it was just, you know, whatever, not, not meant to be. 
Um, but yeah, so 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 there wasn't a, a you know at a, at a young age I kind of had this vision of becoming a biotech entrepreneur, and then I got fascinated with theater, and then I went back into business, and and you, you know now uh, one of the things I do kind of combines my love of storytelling and 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 production with uh, with finance and money. So I kind of I guess have brought it all together. But it was not by any means an inevitable journey. It was more like I kind of followed things that seemed interesting. And eventually I fell into this pattern where people would ask me to do stuff uh, after having worked with me. And then I'd go do the next thing. And then someone else would work with me and say, hey, why didn't you try this? And 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 so I kind of bounced around on that path for for almost uh, 20, for about 20 years. And then, you know, it, it, not to cut too far forward, but, um, you know, I was around 40, uh, I, I'd fallen into doing stuff that I did not like doing. And, and so kind of had this uh, moment of clarity and said, all right, I can't explain to my then, you know, five-year-old child what daddy does for a living. Uh, and, and I don't like the people I'm working with and the money's good, but that's about it. And so I completely rebooted, um, did a very concerted process to figure out what I should be doing and, and got a job uh, at MIT. And, and that had, you know, kind of changed my life. So, uh, you know, I can, there's lots of ins and outs from A to B, but uh, I didn't have a plan until I was 40. Then I made a plan and actually, you know, exceeded everything that I had hoped to do by my wildest imaginations. And I guess now I need to make a new plan because I've, I've checked off everything on the bucket list. That is unbelievable. Before we dive forward more, theater, what is it that captures you about it? Well, first of all, you know, and, and it's not only theater. I'm fascinated with film and, and uh, uh, books and art and literature. You know, it's all forms of the arts and human expression. But but uh, but I did a lot in theater and and. I think part of it was, um, again, this sense of connectivity. You know, when you have a live theater performance, there's electricity in the room between the stage and, and, the, and the audience, and it trades back and forth. And there's this, you're, you're collectively creating this new thing in real time. And that's very exciting to be a part of. Um, and so I did a lot of different things. I wasn't an actor. I was, I was a director and a producer and, and, and writer. Uh, and, and so shaping that vision was, was very exciting for me. Um, you know, as a writer, it was fun and exciting because particularly on the stage and, and if you were imaginative enough, there were no limits to, to what you could do. It's not like there was a, a limit to your special effects budget because you could just have one of your characters say something and mime it or it's off stage or something. And so you could have anything happen. Uh, and, and, you know, I, I recently saw... Uh, Life of Pi uh, in London's West End. And it was just a wonderfully magical production. I mean, I know the, the production has gotten some mixed reviews for, I guess, the, the narrative, but I, I actually didn't think it was a, a linear narrative. It was a tone poem. And, and that was interesting, but it was very emotionally affecting. And one of the wonderful things they did was they had an array of animals that they didn't have CGI, like in the movie. There's an array of animals that were all puppetry. And so that was fantastic. You know, you entered a zoo uh, that was populated by humans, you know, who were, who were puppeteering uh, and, um, and how they fluidly moved through this story where the character, the main character is telling a story through flashbacks. So you're, you're bouncing back and forth through time. Uh, you know, it was just, it was incredibly exciting to be taken on that journey. And I, I loved 
being able to take other people on that journey. So, so what I do now, uh, when I teach entrepreneurs, for example, one of the things that I do that I particularly enjoy doing is I teach them how to use storytelling to pitch their companies. And, and people, I've seen my students do amazing things with that. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, so that, that, that really is almost my, um, my way of connecting with that, with that theater background is, is paying it forward to help, you know, a new generation of entrepreneurs. I mean, I've, I've had more than 20,000 students in 150 countries. By the way, that was entirely accidental. A fascinating story how it happened. Um, and, and all of them, I've been trying to, you know, part of that was teaching them some of these techniques for how can you enlist people in a vision and get them excited about it? Oh, okay. We need to stay more of that. 20,000 students all over the globe. Um, share just how you, how you help them to rethink, to get outside of the way they're heading and think about it from the lens of people. They, they want to move the heart and the mind. Hmm. Well, look, I, I mean, I, my first impulse is to is almost like you know to to remove the magic you know take you backstage and show you inside how we do it and talk about the pedagogical techniques and and I would say things like uh, if I were to do that I would say things like you know well we give them uh, um, uh, strong scaffolding and frameworks so that they they can take on new ideas and figure out where to place those new ideas in their head we show them worked examples of other people who have demonstrated that courage and reinvented industries. We provide them a safe environment in which to experiment, to try new things and, and to fail and to try again and succeed. Uh, and uh, uh, we connect them with many others who are also doing this, which helps create a, a social pressure, a social environment that's positive, that says you can be an innovator and not be alone. You're part of this community of innovators. Uh, and so that that would be the the mechanical way of describing it. Um, if I if I wanted to wax lyric for a minute, I, I'd say uh, we help them discover the poetry within their souls and and how that relates to their passion at work. I love it. I love it. I love it. And you have to help us with the accident. You accidentally. How 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 was this an accident? Oh yeah, you know it's it's, it's a funny story. Uh, so I was. Um, I showed up at MIT. They hired me to help MIT itself become more innovative. Um, and, and I'm not really sure they, they knew what they were getting themselves into. But uh, after about a year of that, where I was working the central administration, uh, I was a little too disruptive. And, and, uh, but there were enough people who said, actually, we need, we need this around here um, that, that we brokered a detente. And so I, was, uh, I had my job split three ways. I think they were trying to slow me down. So they gave me three bosses. Um, and, and what they probably didn't realize is that meant no one could keep track of me and I could go do anything I wanted. Uh, and so, uh, so I was reporting to the, the, the dean of the business school, doing special projects for him. And I was reporting the head of digital learning, helping create a revenue strategy. And I was uh, uh, helping uh, one of the top big data scientists to set up a new research group. And so, so I was very busy and I'm doing all that stuff. And, and the guy, uh, Professor Sandy Pentland, Alex Pentland, yeah. Um, one of my many mentors in my career um, uh, really taught me a lot about particularly navigating academia. And, um, and so in addition to his work with this research group, he also happened to, to run the MIT Media Lab Entrepreneurship Program, which is one of the major centers of entrepreneurial action at MIT and has something like 500 or 600 students a year 
going through their various classes. So, so, so my office was sort of sitting next to Sandy's office in this little office lab area. And, um, and so I'm out at the coffee machine uh, talking to a colleague of mine and, and the student wanders in and, and says, uh, says to my colleague actually, who had been her, her instructor, um, you know, she, she says, I, I started the uh, MIT FinTech Club last week. We have 150 people who signed up. Why don't we have a FinTech startups class? And, and you know, he, he said, well, I don't know, because we're busy and whatever. And, and, and so she, she kept pressing the point and he said, look, I'm teaching six classes this fall. I do not have the bandwidth to teach the class. And so she turns to me and she says, why don't you teach it? And, um, you know, I said, well, because I'm busy. I have three jobs. I really don't have time for this. And she refused to leave our offices until we agreed to teach the class. Uh, and so we, we looked at each other. This was, uh, at the time, she was an MBA student at, at MIT Sloan. This was Melton Demirers, who some have called the Sheryl Sandberg of crypto. You know, you often can see her on CNBC talking about the price of Bitcoin. But at the time, she was a student. And, and Mel just wouldn't leave the office until we agreed to teach the class. So the way we navigated being too busy is the both of us taught kind of taught it together as a team. And, um, and so that was exciting and fun. And it, being, it was tremendously popular. And I think it got like a, a 6.9 out of seven on the student ratings, everyone loved it. And while we're teaching this class, um, these two entrepreneurs wander into my office. They were, they were referred from a, a colleague at MIT Sloan. Uh, and and uh, uh, they said to me, you know, we want to put your FinTech class online. And, and this, just to be clear, th this was a little heretical for us to even consider because um, MIT's president, Raphael Reif, was made president of MIT because he was viewed as a visionary. He was viewed as a visionary because he, when he was the provost at MIT, championed the creation of edX, which was this big online learning joint venture with Harvard that now has, you know, whatever, 80 million people around the world using edX or open edX. And, and so... So he made his, his office, he became the most powerful person at MIT by creating this particular platform. And these two entrepreneurs wanted us to use a different platform. <laughs> so, but, but I said to Sandy, what do you think? And, and Sandy Pentland said, um, tell them we'll only do it if we get to completely reinvent what online learning is. And, and Sandy went on to say, you know, the problem is a lot of online learning, most online learning is bad television. And, and it's just not effective pedagogy. It doesn't serve the purpose. It's not useful. It doesn't help people. If we get to completely reinvent the teaching model, if we get to completely restructure how classes are put together and, and can use some of these technologies and ideas that we're developing in our research in teaching entrepreneurship around fintech, then we'll do it. So we go back to the entrepreneurs and they said, uh, sure, you know, they're very high energy young South Africans, uh, Sam and Rob Paddock. Uh, and, and so, uh, so we got in, in business with them and they, um, you know, their company as a result of that contract that cut uh, grew like almost 200% in one year and they sold the company for a lot of money. And, and uh, you know, there's a, there's a part two to the story, but, but, but to answer the question of how the journey began, it was because, you know, uh, people um, actually, <laughs> it's a combination of people wouldn't take no for an answer. And I said, yes. Um, so some of the most interesting things I've done, I originally said no to. So I can't even claim to be a perceptive genius. I just encountered stubborn entrepreneurs who refused to let me 
stay in the position of no. And so then, you know, Meltem made, you know, got me to teach the FinTech class and then Sam and Rob got me to, to put it online. And then, you know, a few years later, uh, the dean's offices at MIT and Oxford came to me and my business partner, Beth Porter, and said, we want you to start a new online learning company because we need an innovation partner. And, and at that time, I think we actually just, we said yes off the bat, but that was a rare, a rare instance of an immediate yes. I have the biggest smile. I love it. Who would know? <laughs> that's the that's how it started. That is so awesome. It's been, you know, I, I feel blessed or and and it, it's a gift that keeps on giving. Because so for me, the exciting thing is all this incredible stuff that my students are doing. So you know, there's one guy who I ran a workshop that helped about. Uh, uh, at MIT, the dean at the business school had asked me to do this project for him. And so I created a program that educated over 200 billionaire families on how to do impact investing, how to invest with both profit and purpose. And, and one of the guys who came through the workshop, uh, um, Kid Boyle, uh, K-Y-D-D, Kid Boyle, um, uh, you know, was found inspiration from that workshop and said, you know, I want to have my family focus their energies on sustainable investing. You know, ES, environmental related ESG investing. And then from there, he came back to me. He said, this is a great workshop. What else can I take? And so um, I said, well, I, I'm not teaching any more impact investing classes, but I'm going to do this storytelling workshop. And so he flew back to Boston from, from London for the, the storytelling workshop. And in that 48-hour workshop, I watched him find his narrative. And he became, you know, it was amazing to watch the inspiration dawn and, and he then went on and started a program, uh, I believe it's called Horizons, that now has worked with more than 300 ultra high net worth families to get them to direct their problem, their, their money to solving the problems of the world, particularly around the environment and sustainability. So, so you, you know, my students often vastly outachieve anything that I do. And, and that's, that's always the really exciting thing for me. Oh, that's a huge multiplier effect. That... <laughs> that's what I love about academia. It's a platform where you can change the world. You know, it's the old Archimedes quote, you know, if I, I had a lever long enough and a fulcrum to rest it on, I could move the world. And, and, and that's really what academia lets, lets you do, which is why I, you know, I am a pracademic. So I split my time between the, the academic world and the commercial world. So how are um, you, cause you know, and I am, have had a great uh, higher ed experience and just think it's, um, it really changed my life. And at the same time where they're supposed to be having like new learning to your experience, a lot of it is not really innovation focused. So a few thoughts on the institutions and what they could be doing to get out of their own way. You know, mm -hmm. uh, some of them with hundreds of years of legacy to really, you know, take advantage of all that youth and innovative, you know, potential muscle. Um, what would, I mean, short of having someone like you who can go in. Well, just... but you know, I started a company so you can have someone like me at scale, right? So we have almost, you know, we have 170 people now at, at Esme Learning, uh, which is the ed tech that I started with Beth Porter. Beth was the chief product officer at edX. And before that she ran higher ed online at Pearson. So, so she's built platforms that serve 50 million learners around the world. Um, and, and so we're, we're trying to help these universities with, with engaging um, uh, in different ways that increase their impact on the world through, 
through online learning and through online learning that delivers better, delivers better outcomes. But if, if you take a step back from our specific company and look at, so we work with MIT and Oxford and Cambridge and Imperial, but you know, you step back from our little uh, um, neck of the woods and, and look at the, the forest, um, you know, the higher ed industry is in the process of painful transformation that COVID only accelerated. So right now there's about 400 billion of the $7 trillion global education industry is, is digital, which means there's still a lot of uh, uh, the, the landscape that is being transformed, that is becoming digital. And within higher ed in particular, you're gonna see tremendous disruption. It's already starting to happen, tremendous disruption and dislocation for the following reason. Um, if you can take a, a physics class from a professor at uh, you know, Caltech or Berkeley or Harvard, or you can take a business class from a, a professor at Stanford or, or, or Oxford or something, why would you take a class from someone at a, a third tier school? And, and that's what the disruption that online learning permits. And, and so probably what's good, and, and furthermore, you know, there's this whole issue of the affordability of higher ed, the trillions of dollars of student debt in the US, um, a lot of forces are coming together and, and then adding to that, the world is going through uh, about $2.5 trillion of digital transformation uh, just between now and 2025. And you know, that means people need to learn new skills faster, which is not consistent with the model of education. The model of education is you go somewhere for four years and you get a certain set of skills and then you go off into the world and then you work for the next 30 or 40 years, or maybe you go back and do a two-year graduate degree, and then you go back to the world and, and you work. Well, in this digitally transformed world, you're going to need to learn something new every six months, maybe every three months shortly. And, and so the old model of learning doesn't really you know, conform to that. Um, and so, so you've got an education, global education industry with 300 million students and 25,000 institutions that is not fit for purpose. And the big brands, A, will always be valuable to people because they want the credentials so they'll survive. And, and on the other hand, little known that, you know, places like MIT, they actually, there's a joke that says, you know, they're really research labs that happen to teach because, you know, 90% of MIT's revenue is from research, not from teaching. They actually lose money on students. It costs them more to deliver education than they actually make in tuition, despite that very expensive tuition. Um, and and so, uh, um, so the top schools will always be okay. The state-sponsored schools, you know, what in the U.S. we would call community colleges and state uh, college systems, those will continue just because they've got government subsidy. But anything that's not a state-sponsored school or a very top brand is going to experience compression between those two ends, because the state sponsor stuff has a very low cost per credit hour. So it's a very good bargain, if you would, to, to learn about something. And, and the top brands bring marquee credibility, novel insights, uh, a, a logo you can put on your LinkedIn that helps you get a new job. They, they bring a lot. And, and there, so there's good value at the very high end. But anything that's not in the top 20, 10 or 20 institutions, and that's also not subsidized by government, is gonna is gonna experience declining enrollment. It's going to experience uh, bankruptcy. So more and more universities are going bankrupt, and and so there's going to be a lot of disruption in higher ed because it isn't meeting the need with the right price value proposition.
Ah, uh, man, got it. Thank you for that. That uh, I think is really helpful for young and older folks to think about. Um, you know, the there's lots of new ways out there, and uh, the folks earlier in and embracing it, I think, are really, really going to benefit. Um, David, yeah, let's I, say- I know you you got me started in something I spent too much time thinking about, so forgive me if I uh, rambled on. Not at all. I, I love it, and I really appreciate it. Let's go a bit personal. You've got all this, you know, you, you've taken, no, left no prisoners, taken it by storm work-wise. Share with us uh, work-life balance, home life as you're doing all this, uh, the good stuff, the not so good stuff. So there's a, a professor at, at MIT uh, named Roberto Rigobon. And um, he's, he's probably best known as a, as a big data economist. And he's done some really revolutionary work there. But, but he also separately teaches uh, graduate students and, and taught me uh, when I got to sit in on some of his lectures, um, uh, uh, a, a kind of values and sustainability framework that he calls PROMISE. And PROMISE is an acronym. So each letter stands for something. So like P stands for the personal. That's you know looking inward to yourself. R stands for the relational, your close friends and family. And, and think of it as concentric rings. And so it goes out further and further and further. And then you get to M, which stands for uh, markets and I for institutions and S for society. And, and E is like the earth, everything, the environment, everything. And so you basically have to figure out along that spectrum on a scale of one to 10, how important is each of those dimensions for you? And so when you do that, you get a formula for kind of where you should be allocating your time and energy. And, and Roberto's point is that work-life balance is not 50-50. Work-life balance is aligning what you care about the most with your behaviors. And that was an essential insight for me because yeah, I am a self-admitted workaholic. What I do, I'm incredibly passionate about. I have an incredible amount of fun with. And, and, you know, it, it's, it, it gets me very excited every day when I wake up. Uh, and so, um, you know, I will, absent any other pressures, gladly spend seven days a week doing various forms of work. Uh, and so, um, you know, I can envision someone who might have other priorities like family or leisure would, um, would find it very frustrating to be with me. So, um, you know, I've been very lucky that, that uh, I, I have been able to find uh, friends and, and, and a romantic partner who are uh, understanding of my particular lens on, on my priorities. But, you know, it's, it's, um, uh, uh, it's not for everyone. Yeah. Well, getting to the point of really knowing you uh, and what matters to you, and that uh, is where it all starts. I, um, I want to change the world and, and that I am having fun doing. Yeah. Well, and we need it, David. So like, keep going. Like I'm cheering for you more than you could possibly, possibly know. We, uh, we are the say it skillfully show. So you, and we talked about this, you have had, I mean, you have a really great way with people. And so I'd love for listeners to learn from perhaps uh, some of the tough situations you've helped people through, uh, and to mm. give them some ideas, uh, for their own situations. Yeah, so I'll, I'll, offer, I'll offer a few examples. I'll, I'll try and be concise, uh, you know, conscious of time. Uh, so, so, um, so a couple of examples. One, one is, you know, when you have a, uh, when you have a junior person who um, begins to develop a, a bunker mentality, who begins to sort of 
think that people are against them or, or feels threatened and then acts out as a consequence. And how do you coach that person? And so, uh, so, so I had a, a circumstance like this. And, and what I said was, and this was an important lesson from early on in my own career, was to assume positive intent, right? And, and so th- this individual sent me a, um, you know, a text message that someone had, had sent and, and said, look at this, they're, you know, the tone is you know, off and they're, they're ordering me around. And I looked at the message and it was very fact-based. It was very much, this is the way we do things and this is what you should be doing. But it, it wasn't, you know, I don't think it bridged into being hostile or ordering them. It was just that, you know, the, these two folks already had had a couple of run-ins. And so, you know, I had to help this, this individual reset and, and look again and say, look, just assuming positive intent, assuming that this person actually wants to see you succeed, how would you interpret this message? And that helped, I think, it's known as reframing. That helped this individual sort of have a different look at um, how things are. So, um, so, so that was an example of, you know, a junior person who needed a little bit of, of coaching. Um, you know, another thing that you will often run into in startups in particular, which I've spent a lot of time working in, is when you have to let someone go. And sometimes it's not because they're a bad person or even that they have not done good work previously, but it's because um, they, the job has outgrown their capabilities. And, and you weren't you can't move them to another job for a variety of reasons. That does come up. And so on the one hand, startups normally have like 25% turnover uh, annually. And it's partly because not everyone's cut out to work at a startup. And, and partly it's because, um, you know, someone who can get you from zero to one might not be able to get you from one to 10 or from 10 to 100. And, and so how do you have that kind of conversation where someone, it's not like they stole or lied or did, you know, are terrible at, at, for what they did previously, but they're, they're, the wheels are starting to come off uh, for them moving forward. And you've been unsuccessful in coaching them to step up or expand to that new uh, plateau they need to reach. Uh, and then, so you have to go through the discussion around, um, you know, uh, not everyone uh, is, is called for the entire journey. I mean, we've been lucky at Esme Learning, our turnover rate is under 5%, which is unusually low for a startup. Uh, but we still have people that either leave or that we have to let go. And so having that conversation around acknowledging their contribution, thanking them for their work, and then you, you basically have to say things that, that can't engage in an argument. You know, you say, um, we need to make a change. That, that, kind of, that abstracts the argument away from, uh, you, know, per, you know, having that person feel bad. Uh, or hostile, because you don't want to get into an adversarial uh, situation when letting someone go. Uh, and coupled with that, you do want to make sure you make them a, a generous offer if, in fact, it's not really because they didn't do well last year, but because they're starting to not be able to, to carry the thing forward. Um, and, and so uh, um, you need to show empathy, you need to show compassion uh, and support and help them frame a story that lets them walk out with their heads held high. Um, so that would be a, a second tough conversation that you really need to put advanced thought into if you're gonna, if you're gonna have it. Um, and then the third example you know, I will give is, is of probably the most difficult conversation that I've had in the last 10 years. Uh, and that was a personal conversation. 
and, and in particular, um, so I have two children, uh, they're now 13 and 15. Uh, and, and my oldest, um, a couple of years ago, came out as, as bisexual and then uh, more recently came out as non-binary. So the, the preferred pronouns are they or them. Uh, so my oldest uh, uh, is um, very much like daddy, a fairly outward facing personality, extroverted and, and passionate and, and really you know, when, when uh, uh, my, my oldest child sees injustice is, is ready to speak up against it. And, and so um, you may have noticed in the US and Florida, they passed a law around uh, bathrooms and people from uh, um, uh, who are gender fluid or gender minorities. And, and, uh, and this caused, you know, a lot of um, discord in, uh, in, in liberal quarters and, in, and frankly, anyone who cares about human rights uh, was pretty put off or disturbed by this, uh, uh, you know, by this hateful legislation. And, and so there's a debate going online and, and my oldest child gets into it with another kid who is saying that this is a good thing that, that you know, there shouldn't be unisex bathrooms. And, 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 um, and they're going back and forth. And, and when uh, the, the, the boy realized that uh, he was not going to out-argue my oldest child, he resorted to the, the last refuge of the incompetent, the personal insult. And so he, uh, he called my, my oldest child uh, the F word, uh, which was very disturbing because this was the first time that, 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 that my child had ever encountered hate speech. And so what do you do with that as a parent? What do you say to your, your child who, who has had this experience? And of course, the added part of it was uh, my kid, who's not going to back down from a fight, proceeded to copy and paste this text message and post it on public forums and, and say, you know, what this kid did was wrong. And, um, and so that caused a little contretemps and the school principal got involved and whatever, but, um, you know, they handled it appropriately. But, uh, you know, I had to, on the one hand, be extremely supportive and, and say, uh, you know, we love you and we are glad that you are standing up for what's right. And, and furthermore, that you were trying to educate this kid about uh, his ignorance and help him see a different point of view. Uh, and, and on the other hand, he said, you know, social media is forever. And, you know, maybe there was another way to handle this. Um, and so that was something, again, I had to, I had to spend some time really thinking about what, what to say. And, and frankly, I want to call out, um, uh, you know, the Reddit, and in particular, the the LGBT uh, subreddit that provided me with some, some helpful uh, advice on, you know, what would you want your parent to say to you when, when faced with the situation? Wow. Wow. Kudos for you for the, just the thoughtfulness, David, and then for reaching out to some resources to get your own self educated. And uh, I really appreciate all of those yeah. examples. Wonderful. I mean, look, I'm not, I'm, I'm by no means the, the, a perfect father. I'm, I'm somewhat absentee because of that commitment to work we talked about, but, but I do try to, uh, I do try to do the best that I can. Well, that's what all of us can do. So I appreciate your modeling that. Um, okay. Let's take it to a wrap here. I um, am wondering the biggest compliment you've ever received? Ooh, I'm gonna have to, the, let's ask the other ones while I think about that and, and, um, and I'll come back. I mean, well, it was by example, which is again, 
my my oldest child is 75,000 words into writing a, a, a first fantasy novel, having been inspired by by daddy's writing. So um, you know, that's kind of a, a big compliment. But but I would say, um, you know, it, it's come from more than one former student who has said, you know, your class changed my life. And, and that is something which every educator aspires to. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, David, we are all perfectly imperfect. I am wondering if there were one thing you'd change about yourself, if you could, what would that be? So, I, you know, I want to give the flip answer. Like, I wish there were five of me, but, but that's, that's way too self-serving. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, it, it's hard one to answer because I do kind of feel like I'm pretty self-actualized. I really do like who, who I am and, and how I approach things. So my first impulse of saying, well, you know, I would, I would really love to be less impulsive, you know, and, and, you know, be able to, you know, or have more focus or something. But if I did that, then I might be less creative. And so, uh, you, you know, that one's, that one's actually hard, even harder to answer. So I, I would say if I'd change one thing about myself, um, uh, I would, I would probably uh, um, maybe go easier on myself sometimes. Maybe that's yes. what, what I would change. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I love that because I just said that to someone this morning about not being so hard on oneself, being your best friend a little bit more and um, just, you know, showing that self-support. I love it. Um, okay. What, do, you know, you've heard yourself say a lot and I'm wondering if you have a top takeaway just in listening to yourself um, and go through your amazing journey. Know what drives you and have courage to then pursue it. Fabulous. And um, you have been very generous and uh, I know that you are extroverted, so it's easy for you to share, but what was it like for you? What was the experience for you of sharing your story? Oh, well, I, look, I had a lot of fun because uh, I got to relive some of these incredible things that I've gotten to do. And, uh, and, and so it's been great for me and I really appreciate you offering me this, this opportunity. Well, I cannot appreciate you enough. Um, you excel at leading the way to go places that people haven't gone and really need to go. I, I just love the driver of positive change that changed the world. That's my, that's my language. So um, I want to thank you for being a big, big, big part of the solution. The world needs you. And um, David, if I can be helpful in any way at all, you please let me know. I'm cheering for you and for Beth and um you take good care. Great. Thank you so much, Molly. Yeah. Okay, folks, if that isn't inspiring enough for me to get off my butt and do even more, I don't know what would be. Okay, I'm going to share a thought for the week, courtesy of David, who says, people don't buy technologies, they buy solutions to problems. So make sure you're solving a problem. And that's a wrap. I thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify David's voice, reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality, essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life. Homelessness is a problem that's more costly to ignore than solve. The U.S. spends $12 billion a year responding, but resources alone aren't enough. I'd like you to know there are cities and counties proving what does work. Partnering with Community Solutions, a nonprofit I'm on the board of, 
more than 80 communities around the country are succeeding in ending homelessness, beginning with chronic and veteran homelessness. They convene local leaders around data and are changing how they work and spend their resources. So homelessness becomes rare. More than half have already reduced the number of people experiencing chronic and veteran homelessness with commitment to get to zero. What can you do? Visit www.built40.org and see whether your community is engaged. Contact your mayor and ask, do you know the number of people experiencing homelessness in real time? Do you know every homeless person by name? What are you doing to drive measurable reductions in homelessness? Please challenge the fiction that says homelessness is an intractable problem. Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out SayItSkillfully.com and sign up so you don't miss her latest 90-second video. And please, be part of the solution. Kindly tell others about this program so they say it skillfully too. 